In this episode, I'm joined by Cynthia Font Zoria, polyglot, translator, and chief Spanish interpreter from Minrolling Jetsun Kandra Rinpoche. We learn about Cynthia's remarkable upbringing as the daughter of a diplomat, raised as a citizen of the world, and becoming fluent in seven languages. We discover how, when her father was stationed in India, an introduction to Lokpon Sechu Rinpoche by the King of Nepal would change Cynthia's life forever. Cynthia recounts her close personal relationship with Lopon Setsu Rinpoche, as well as the transformative effects of interpreting for her current guru, Minrolling Jetsun Kandra Rinpoche. So without further ado, Cynthia Font Zaria. Cynthia Font, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Steve. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> so your trajectory is characterized, at least in my mind, but by both extremely impressive linguistic and academic training as well as your devotion as a practitioner of Buddhism. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your background and how it was you became interested in these areas. Mm, sure, gladly so. So I had the fortune to be born in a family of uh, diplomats. My dad is an ambassador to Mexico. So we just spent our whole life traveling, going around the places where my dad was posted. And so, since the moment I was born, I was born in Brazil, actually, uh, I was forced to come into contact with different languages and to just adapt really quickly to a new environment. Every three years, we would actually move to a new country. And so the good thing is that my parents wanted to keep um, an educated system that would be exactly the same that we could follow all over the world. And we wouldn't have any problems with our studies. So they chose the French international school, the Lycée Francais. So actually I grew up mostly with, you know, um, kids from all sorts of backgrounds as well, but the same language that we had all in common was French. So then from very early on, I had to learn Portuguese, French and Spanish at home. <laughs> and then when I moved, when I was uh, almost turning four, we moved to Italy, I had to there learn Italian. And then, so, you know, at age of four, I already knew a few languages and I had to just Kind of keep learning on the spot so that I could survive in the cities where we were basically. So that is the background for this love and passion that I have for linguistics and communication with people. Basically it's just this extreme happiness and joy at being able to communicate in the native language with the people that I'm in. And so I guess that just developed later on for a passion for you know literature and uh, translation of course which we were almost forced to translate already my sister and I since we were kids because you know we were in cocktails and lunches and dinners and all of these kinds of events that happened in the embassy and other embassies were invited to and of course you have access to people from all over the world so we would be you know in a meeting and speaking different languages at the same time so I think that really shaped my my brain and my way of thinking and viewing the world from very young age and so fast forwarding to when I was 12, my dad was posted in Delhi as uh, the Mexican ambassador in India. And um, in India, he had the responsibility actually of um, representing Mexico also in Nepal and in Sri Lanka. So we had an incredible adventure going to Nepal and meeting the king of Nepal, King Birendra, um, and the king told my father that he wanted for us to go visit one of his most important gurus, a Buddhist master. 
And he said, of course, your highness, we're honored to go. And so he sent the next day um, somebody to pick us up at the hotel and took us to visit an incredible Buddhist master. His name was Lopin Chichurimpache. He was from Bhutan. He was a Kaju master. And so, you know, as a family, we had the opportunity to go visit him. And we had this translator that was accompanying us. And that was really the moment that changed everything in my life. You know, I was 12 years old. I was sitting there in front of this Buddhist master that clearly had this aura of just love and peacefulness and, you know, all the qualities were just shining forth. And I thought to myself, really, I was so frustrated that I couldn't communicate with him directly. And I didn't really feel the translator was doing much justice to what, what I was saying, at least. And at that moment, really, something struck me. And I thought, well, what's the point in knowing all of these languages in this kind of life that I've had if I cannot communicate with the one who might be the most important person in my life? So that was really the beginning of my journey, learning about Buddhism and Tibetan and all of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. Something I've heard from people who speak several languages. How many languages do you speak? Seven. Seven. Wow. Can you list them? Sure. So Spanish is my native language, then Portuguese, Italian, Catalan, French, uh, Tibetan. And did I say Italian? Maybe I'm missing one along the way. Huh. English, of course. <laughs> right. Which is the hardest? I think Tibetan. Yeah. Perhaps I'll ask you why later. But one of the things that I've heard from people who speak multiple languages, especially growing up with multilingual, is that sometimes one's proficient or quite good at all the different languages, you know, native level fluent. But mm -hmm. sometimes I've heard multilingual people express a frustration that they don't feel they're really able to speak as articulately in the upper kind of academic or very high-end uh, part of the language. How is it that you were able to obtain such a, a high level of articulation in so many different languages? That's a great question, Steve. And, you know, I've been interested in that my whole life. The beauty of this kind of trajectory that we had growing up as a family living in different countries made it where I didn't really have to make much of an effort in the sense that you have to live in the country, you have to communicate with people, and you're meeting incredible people because we were in a very privileged environment. Therefore, I wanna say that it just happens in a very natural way. You just learn um, by necessity, you're almost forced if you want to really survive. And of course, don't get me wrong, I met a lot of other um, children and other people, you know, expats and different members of the community in all of these different countries that would not learn the, the, the language of the country. And I always thought that that was just such a shame because I thought, well, they're missing out on so much. So maybe, you know, I think we had the blessing that my father is a poet and very, uh, he's always loved literature. So I think he was also really emphasizing that at the house. And so we had the fortune that in the Lycée Francais, the education in the French system is really, really high. And so the language of the country that we were in would be offered and almost compulsory in our classes. So we would also learn it in school, meaning we learn how to read it and write as well. So I think that parallelly helped um, to reach those levels of proficiency, you know, but when you're living and experiencing every single day, you're fully immersed in that language. And my view of it is that you become the person in that language. I was actually talking to my sister who's also a translator a couple of days ago, and we were saying how 
we have a different personality, a different tone of voice. We even behave differently when we're speaking a different language, actually. And, and I think that is really fascinating. And I think that really shows that it's really the worldview. It's not just mastering a level of proficiency, as they would call it in linguistic, but it's just a matter that you're immersed in that culture and therefore you start behaving like a member of that culture. And to me, that is really the key of, uh, of learning a language properly. So, you know, we were just very lucky to be able to be in that scenario where we can just live it and breathe it, right? Could you think of an interesting contrast between some of your linguistic sub-personalities? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> um, my Tibetan friends make fun of me for this and my Tibetan colleagues. Um, when I speak Tibetan, I, I tend to be very almost like apologetic uh, because there are all these levels of hierarchy in the Tibetan language. And so when I'm with my colleagues, I have a level of respect that is very high. And so, you know, there's this honorific register where you respect the person you're talking to and you're putting yourself in a humilific position, meaning you are really respecting from a lower point of view. And, uh, and then all these words like, I'm so sorry, come out. And I don't know, things like that, that come out a lot more than in other languages. So they always laugh at me and say, well, when you speak English, you don't do that. But I think it's just a part of wanting to honor that honorific thing, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Traveling around so much and having such an extraordinary upbringing, both in terms of being in different places and the sorts of people that you met, um, and perhaps even the sorts of the sort of families that you were being raised in, which also sounds very extraordinary. What other ways do you think, perhaps not so obvious ways, did that experience shape you as a person? You know, I people often asked my sister and I. My sister is three years older, and they would often ask, you know, do you enjoy this kind of upbringing where every three years you're completely uprooted and you have to start from scratch? What about your friends? What about a sense of community? You know, we would see people who would say, oh, you know, we have this um, party or meeting with our uh, high school friends or things like that. Well, I don't have such a thing because I was never in that environment. So the question was always, how do you like it? Or would you have preferred a normal life? And that question was always really interesting because we got it almost in every country that we moved to. So we had to keep thinking about it parallelly with growing up, actually. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I have thought about that since very early on until now. And my answer has been the same constantly up until now, which is the answer to your question. The fact that there's so much richness in meeting people from all different kinds of social backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, economic backgrounds, make it that your life is so enriched, you know? And so my life is all about communicating and connecting with people. And I think I'm very attached to that. I'm really, I take great pride in, in, in getting to know people. And I think that's just the richness of what I have been able to experience. And so I would never change it. Even if of course, moving um, from a place where you've really been able to create a community and live happily and learn the language after so much effort, of course, it's very difficult to give that up. But you know that the next one is going to be even more incredible. And the beauty of it is that you get to keep those friends. Actually, I am in touch with a lot of friends that I have even from, from early on in Brazil. So that's pretty, you know, I'm 37 now. So that's pretty amazing to be able to do that. And that, I think, has been 
a great point. And in uh, tangent with the languages, that has kept me also practicing all of those languages because all of those friends belong from those um, cultures, you know? So then you keep it alive, you listen to music, you read books, your friends give you recommendations or you go watch a movie in that language, you go visit them. So I think that's just been an incredible source of just expounding the horizons, you know? And I'm very proud and, and grateful to my parents for that. So it seems like what you're saying, uh, am I reading it correct, that your social relationships are one of the key strategies that you use to keep your various languages alive? Because I mean, seven languages, how do, we, how do you even keep that fresh? How do you keep that sharp? It's, yeah, that's a great question. It's actually really hard, as you know, you know, if you stop memorizing vocabulary or practicing and you forget it. But the way to keep it up, for me, that's, it's exactly what you said. It's just speaking to my friends, writing, you know, I'm forced to write. Um, I never really learned to write Italian very properly, for instance, because I, I was really, really young. I was a toddler then, and I was focusing more on French, but I did still get the chance to get around it. So when I write or text some of my friends in Italy, then I can see that I have some, I have to work a little bit more on it, but it comes back. So reading, if you keep up uh, reading books, listening to music, for me, music is a big one because I really love music. And so the fact that there's a melody helps, you know, you remember the lyrics and then you're practicing without even noticing, like in class, you know, I try to do things that are very playful and uh, very lyrical in a way that you're not noticing that your brain is actually working really hard. So through the friendships, all of those mediums come in and then watching movies, of course, then you're relaxed, you know, you're enjoying. So it's all of those things that kind of make your brain work without knowing that you're working for it. It's just fooling yourself a little bit. <laughs> Amazing. So, okay, you're 12 years old and you're meeting one of the King's primary gurus. Uh, at that time, uh, had you had any exposure to Buddhism? And what, what happened next? It seems like you said this was a pivot point, both linguistically and perhaps even in terms of your religious uh, orientation. Absolutely, absolutely. So at that moment, as a family, and again, I have to say that the influence of the family and the father was so important because maybe if my parents hadn't been also so touched by that meeting, maybe I would have been like, okay, well, that was an incredible experience and then move on. But I think we were all as a family so enticed and just really embraced by the, 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 the kindness and the compassion of this guru that we made a point to actually go visit him several times a year. So we built a relationship with him. At that point, I was exposed to Buddhism, but very, very kind of uh, from the outside perspective, because my dad had a translator and also an English teacher who was a Mexican young fellow who was a translator, actually. He had already been learning Buddhism and learning how to translate into different languages, but focusing more on Tibetan. And he was a great friend. He would come home and, and, and have lunch with us. So he started talking to us about the community that he was involved with and trying to get us to meet some of the Buddhist masters that he was um, working with. And so he was kind of a, a door that opened to that world. So I had a little bit of contact, but not much. And, you know, I was going to school. I was a kid, so I didn't have a lot of leisure time or interest in doing other things that are extracurriculum, you know. 
But that trip to Nepal meeting uh, Lopanchichu Rinpoche just changed everything in the sense that he gave us a teaching that day um, and it really hooked us. And, and I remember asking, but this samsara that you're talking about, what is it? You know, and I remember having that word in my mind for months thinking, what does he mean by samsara? I want to find out. And so that just really started and opened everything up. And uh, it was really the connection that we had with him that brought us to, to changing our life. Now, my parents um, are not Buddhist per se, even though they're very interested in the philosophy, but my sister and I were invited a few months later to attend the inauguration of this Rinpoche's monastery in Nepal. And when we went to visit, it was just in the midst of being finished and painted. And he was showing us how the Buddha statue in the Lhakang in the main shrine room was being painted and things like that. And so a few months later, he said, would you like to come uh, for the inauguration? And so my sister and I went and uh, we just happened to take refuge in one of the ceremonies without, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Actually, my sister said, you know, she gave me like this in the elbow. We were in the assembly. There were so many people that have flown from all over the world. And Rinpoche said, you know, whoever hasn't taken refuge, if you would like, I am going to give you refuge now. And so I looked at my sister and I said, what is that? My sister had been studying, I omitted to tell you, she had been studying already for six or seven months um, Buddhism at a um, university in Delhi. And so she knew a little more than me. So I said, what is that? And she said, oh, I'll tell you later. <laughs> Just raise your hand. You're not going to regret it. Trust me. And another friend who was next to us said the same thing. She said, oh, my God, you won't regret it. So then I took refuge, having no idea what I was getting myself into. And of course, I don't regret it. So that's how it really happened for me. <laughs> What's the significance of taking refuge in itself and also with a high lama like that? That's a really, really important question that, you know, I don't even know that I'm qualified to answer it. I can say from the very external, very superficial point of view, that is really just the beginning, the starting point of your journey as an individual who really recognizes the three jewels as being the, the truth and you take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma in the Sangha until you attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. So it's really your promise that you're going to, in the three roots, you're going to really give yourself to that truth that is going to be unfolded, that is going to be manifested in, in front of your eyes by the commitment of practicing that path. So I did not know that at that time and at that time in a very superficial way, what it meant for me was that receiving this tremendous blessing from this master with whom I had a clearly a connection that was just from the heart because I didn't know much about Buddhism. I hadn't studied it. It was almost like becoming the daughter or the granddaughter and just saying, you know, just take me um, by, your, by the hand and just guide me. So for me, that's what it meant until, of course, I could grow a little bit in, in my understanding of that and, and deepen uh, until somebody actually explained, until he explained in the teaching what it meant, you know. So, of course, you can look at refuge from inner, outer, and secret and, and innermost secret um, perspectives, of course. Interesting. So what happened next? So what happened next? Then, then that was really the beginning of an adventure for us as a family and for my sister and I as, as Buddhist practitioners getting to know what that actually meant. 
And we lived in India for three more years after that and had the chance to go visit him in Nepal very, very often. And that's how we received most of the transmissions that you usually get at the beginning of the path or when you're lucky enough to have a teacher give you bodhisattva vows, give you different um, sadhana instructions. And we just started practicing the Vajrayana like that, like from the start. And that was really just incredible because I had never known Buddhism or a community or a Buddhist master in another setting which means we were just in in the room with this master getting the teachings directly from him and that was just something that of course it's really hard to find and very rare but i wasn't aware because that's all i knew you know so then growing up later on developing on the path realizing what a fortune that was to just have that relationship and so that that continued on and then um, after being in india i actually finally went to mexico when i was 14 years old to live there i had never lived in my own country up until then and so i spent three years living there and Rinpoche actually came and visited a couple of times and taught there which was also pretty unheard of <laughs> um, so we just continued the relationship until 2003 when he unfortunately passed away um, and then I had a whole other set of, um, I think, you know, almost existential crisis of what do you do when your guru passes away and what is next? And so that opens up a whole other chapter of my life at the point when he passed and, and, and then I found the teacher that I've been with ever since. So that, that has been mainly the, the trajectory up until now, I want to say. How many years were you studying with Lopun Setsu Rinpoche? And was it mostly group teachings there in Nepal? It sounds like you were a personal student, actually, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, this sort of thing. And what were the practices that you were initiated in at that time? So it was really funny because he only spoke Tibetan and Bhutanese. And he had, <laughs> this is so funny when I remember, he had a translator who was actually his main attendant. When I say translator, you know, I'm really putting it like that in quotes. He was not a translator. He was a Lama that took care of him. And so we attended a couple of group meetings when some other students would be there visiting him. And we happened to be in Kathmandu and Rinpoche would say, come and join. I'm going to give an empowerment. For example, I remember one time he said, I'll give an empowerment and you should come. We had no idea what an empowerment was, but he was inviting us and we went. And so that was actually, I think I only received about two group teachings or empowerments transmissions from him in Kathmandu itself. The rest, it was really just personal in his room. And I had no idea that he was really teaching me in a formal way because we were just sitting by, he was in his bed and we were just sitting by, by his bed, listening to him. Um, at, the, at that time, we were fortunate enough to always come with our friend who was a translator, this Mexican friend that I mentioned, who was my dad's um, translator and teacher. So we were so fortunate. We had an actual private translator with us who was so happy to be there also with Rinpoche. And that just happened like that very casually. But anyway, in these other, I think, two transmissions that we received, it was hilarious because he put his attendant to kind of translate who he didn't really speak English very well. And I just remember, and this is funny and it, it fulfills the purpose of what I was telling you before that I just never really trusted translators. Rinpoche spoke for maybe five minutes and it was an empowerment. I think we received a, a Vajra Sattva, Dorja Senpai empowerment, the Buddha of uh, purification, you could say, at, at least at that point. 
And um, we kind of knew Rinpoche was explaining about the deity and the practice. And then this attendant of his uh, functioning as a translator started telling us the story of how the Buddha gave his body to the uh, in, um, uh, hungry tigress in Namo Buddha in his previous lives. And we started looking at each other sort of like, are you sure that's what Rinpoche say? And so he, he just went on tangents and started telling us stories which had nothing to do, obviously, with what was happening. But Rinpoche knew, and in his great wisdom and kindness, he would just laugh and bring him back to the point. So maybe it's because of that reason that it, that it didn't happen too often that we received these kinds of transmissions um, like that in public. And it was more of a, you know, smaller setting and, and Rinpoche made sure that his words were actually transmitted the way that he was saying them. So that was for a few years until um, we left India as a family. And then I had the opportunity to see Rinpoche in Mexico and in Spain where he also taught a lot and just received group deep. There, there were very large gatherings of maybe 300 people, 400 people that would attend his teachings. I didn't know that he was very famous and had students all over the world, you know? So that's how I discovered his magnetism in a way that, you know, when we saw him personally in his room, we didn't know he had such a big following all over the world. So that's how it was. From the point of view of personal experience of practice, I don't know if you can recall, can you cast your mind back to those early days when you were beginning to practice, uh, I suppose, meditation, and as you said, sadhana, various kinds, the sorts of effects you noticed or the sorts of experiences that you had, uh, what was it like to begin practicing uh, from having done nothing at all to being in such an unusual situation? Mm. I do remember, I do remember. The first thing that I started with was doing prostrations because we starting on the nundra, the preliminary practices, that's actually what Rinpoche bestowed on us and taught us, instructed that we had to really focus on completing the nundro and practice it correctly. And so we were lucky to receive those teachings very early on. So I remember just, you know, learning to throw myself on the floor without hurting my body too much and, and, and trying to understand what it means to have such an intense physical exercise action which is of course a type of yoga but at the same time it is clearly a very deep um, practice of purification and just getting your mind ready for for the next of course the next round of purification with or Simpa and so on and i just remember doing it thinking i think just of trying to develop devotion you know that i wasn't fully understanding what was happening and why I had to fully do it, but that I knew because Rinpoche had given it to us that he knew it would be the preparation for something else and that I had to just build the ground. And I was fortunate to have a few friends who were Buddhist in Delhi that would actually tell me, you know, come and practice with us Sunday morning. Let's just do prostrations in the morning. And so I had a little bit of a Sangha at the beginning that also helped me through that until you know I received more teachings and started reading more books and, and, and focusing more on, on that. Now, what I can say about the change that I could really see very early on was that as most people, you know, when they find a path or they really give themselves into a path of spiritual practice, it was a moment of turmoil in our life as a family. Actually, my parents were just splitting up and it was a very of course, you know, very difficult period for all of us because we were in India. And so my parents had been serving the foreign service for 
at that point, maybe 30 years. And they had just bought a property in Mexico about, I think, two years prior to that point, which means before that, we had nothing anywhere. We were just traveling wherever my dad was posted. And so when my mother made the decision that she would separate from my father, it meant that she would go back to Mexico to start a life from scratch. And we as children, at that point we were three, I have two other sisters, we wanted to be with our mother actually. So that was a moment in our life where, you know, we had to make those kinds of very complicated decisions and know that our life was going to change again very drastically from that separation. And so, of course, all of us were going through a really difficult time and Rinpoche was an incredible source of blessing and guidance and everything. So I just started practicing right in the moment when our parents kind of told us that they were actually beginning this very painful separation. So it really anchored me. I remember just feeling, okay, well, I have to now practice so that I can influence um, the fact that, you know, our family and our family members, our extended family in Mexico, our friends can, can at least, you know, be touched by, by the blessings. You know, I said, well, you know, I was a child, I was 13 years old. And I thought, well, if she tells me that this carries the blessings, then it must be so. So then let's at least try to do that. So that was, of course, really impactful and emotionally, and I think in my psyche and, and of course, in my, in my daily life. And I have to say, and we always say it as a family, had he not had been there for us at that time, things could have probably gotten a lot more complicated for all of us, you know? So it was pretty special that it happened then. What do you mean by your practicing influencing your family and, and those around you? And also, what sort of complications do you imagine may have occurred if, if you hadn't have had that? Well, you know, along with the uh, transmission of the Nondro that Rivichu gave us, he gave us the Bodhisattva vow. And as a 13-year-old, I remember feeling, well, here I'm giving this promise that I have to take every day and sustain of uh, working to really... Uh, liberate myself from klesha and everything that is negative so that I can really help sentient beings. And so when you're a child, really, I mean, I was a teenager, but I thought, okay, I'm going to take that very seriously. I'm going to really try and liberate beings by my behavior. And so I remember, of course, very naively thinking that if I just really sat every day and repeated that promise, that I could just, from the radiation of what that promise carried in itself as a blessing that itself could just help sentient beings in general that's that was my very childish approach to it but at the same time i feel like that's maybe a beginning of how you can develop a, a pure sort of motivation you know with a child's mind so i'm saying that it influenced me and my family because you know when when you're going through a divorce uh, with your parents at that age and you're across the globe and you have to change your life, like, there was a lot of anger to it. Like, okay, now you're you're uprooting me again from India. That we loved India and and that it's one of my favorite places on earth. So I was a little upset, you know. I have to leave my friends and everything and access to Rinpoche in Nepal to go start a life from scratch in Mexico because my parents didn't get along anymore. So all of those feelings of just being angry and not understanding and everything that had happened as a family, um, I think it really helped to have this attitude, but okay, but remember you're supposed to practice and have this 
promise and it probably really helped have um, an attitude of a little bit more knowing that there was a protection there i think i think that was an influence and what could have happened i mean i'm not sure maybe a lot of different things could have happened but um i think that that brought a little bit more uh harmony at least within the parents split up and and with my sisters and things like that so i mean more in in that level of just harmony in the ground of this kind of very uprooting and difficult separation so could you talk a little bit about the time then when your teacher did die and you said you had quite a crisis at that point, quite an existential right. crisis. Can you talk mm -hmm. a bit about that time? Sure, sure. I think if I remember correctly, I always forget if I was 19 or 20 years old. I was living in France at that time. I was studying and, and working. And I actually went back to India and Nepal and with my boyfriend at the time just as a trip. And I had been in touch with Rinpoche's attendant and we were supposed to go visit him in Kathmandu, but there was a blockade. There was something that was going on uh, at the border. And we were, we had a lot of difficulties reaching Kathmandu from Varanasi. We started a journey from Varanasi. And I remember uh, Rinpoche's attendant writing me and saying, you know, Rinpoche has to fly to, uh, I, I don't remember if it was Malaysia or Thailand in a few days. So if you don't make it by this date, you're gonna miss him. And that's what happened. Unfortunately, I reached a day later and that would have been the last time that I could have seen him. So of course that, that brought a lot of grief that I was just there and something was blocked along the way and I couldn't really say goodbye from that. Of course I didn't know it would have been a goodbye, but uh, later on I understood that. So when he passed, I was, you know, a young adult in France. I was studying Buddhism a lot. I was already studying Tibetan at the University of Langues Orientales in Paris. And I was working at the Musée Guimet, the Museum of um, uh, Himalayan and, and, and Asian arts. Um, and so I was very connected to the whole Himalayan Buddhist world. And I think at that moment, it just really shook my ground. I thought, well, now what does one do as a practitioner when your master with whom you've had the fortune of talking to in such a private level passes? What do you do? Do you look for another teacher? Do you just go on on your own? And I knew that I was very young still and very young in my learning. He was more of a grandfather figure to me uh, of course he was a teacher, but I had not had so many opportunities up until then to really just study a curriculum of teachings gradually and progress on the path as you are supposed to. So I knew so many things were still missing and, and even the guidance of what is the next thing that I have to practice or to study, right? So I did find myself in that moment thinking, I'm an orphan, right? So what does an orphan do? How do I go about it? And I think in that questioning, in that quest, I happened to go back to one of the centers that I was connected to in France, in Dordogne, in the south of France, and, um, and, and met some of the Buddhist masters that were teaching there and had connections and started translating already at that time into uh, mostly from English into French and just being more active in the community. But still, there was always this thing missing of, okay, this is all wonderful and I'm connected to them and I'm so blessed. However, what is going to happen next? 
And it took about, I think, a year or two uh, until I met Jitsun Kandu Rinpoche, Ming and Jitsun Kandu Rinpoche, with whom the first moment that I attended a teaching by Rinpoche, I really, I wasn't, you know, it's not that I was looking to see which teacher would then fill the shoes of Rinpoche who was passed, but I clearly felt, okay, if I find guidance and I feel that somebody is going to be the person who's going to guide me next, and I'm not going to hesitate to go that route. And I was in front of Jitsun Kandu Rinpoche in this massive teaching, I remember it was really warm, there were like maybe 500, 600 people. And just sitting there again, you know, as a 20 year old, uh, having gone through that process and thinking, I was just blown away by Rinpoche's teachings and thinking, I think I would like to study with her. <laughs> and that was just the beginning of, okay, now I think I can request to be a student and start a relationship. I had no idea how to do it because I didn't really know how often Rinpoche would come to France or not. It was just the introduction to who she was and to her teachings. So after that, I did a lot of research and started um, finding the places where Rinpoche would teach and trying to attend the teachings. And then, of course, I tried very um, intensely early on to get a meeting so that I could talk with Rinpoche and then see, to tell her my story and ask her if I could be a student. So that was, that was the beginning. And then everything opened up. And a couple of years later, I got the opportunity to have a very short personal interaction. And I asked if I could study in India with her and, and follow her teachings. And she said, yes. And so the rest is history. <laughs> so Jetsun Kandra Rinpoche, really quite a remarkable figure, both in how she's placed within the tradition and also in terms of her personality. Could you talk a little bit about who she is and how she's placed within the tradition? And then perhaps a little bit about what it's been like to be a personal student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Rinpoche is an extraordinary master from the perspective that she has had an incredible education, having access to, you know, Western education. Rinpoche went to school with nuns in, uh, in Dehradun in India. Um, during the day, she would study with, with the nuns and do a whole, you know, academic curriculum as, as we all have studied, you know, math and geography and history and English and all of that. And then uh, she tells, she tells that in the evenings and whenever there was free time at, at, aside from school, that she would study very intensely, of course, with her tutors in the monastery. And so her upbringing was pretty exceptional, I, I, I want to say, in the sense that being a young tulku who is a female in that very patriarchal, of course, society and tradition, and being born as the daughter of one of the most renowned and, and, and sacred masters ever, um, Rinpoche's father was uh, His Holiness Milin Trichin Rinpoche, who was, you know, the holder of the Mindraling lineage. The Mindraling lineage is a blood, um, blood lineage that had started with um, Terzak Limpa, the founder of the lineage, the great Tertan treasure revealer in the 17th century. And so a lineage that has remained intact ever since. And so, you know, imagine being born as a woman and recognized, Rinpoche was recognized, I want to say, at the age of three by His Holiness, the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, and His Holiness, Digo Kyunzi Rinpoche, and these incredible masters 
as the um, the incarnation of the uh, as as she is called more popularly the great Akini of Turpu, who had actually been the consort of the fifteenth Karmapa, and an emanation of Yeshitsoyel, and of course uh, just a you know uh, an emanation of Tara as well. And so imagine, you know, being a woman uh, in that kind of very, want to say, almost like a royal family, a really important aristocratic family from, from central Tibet uh, in exile in India. And having that education and being in this modern world, um, learning English perfectly at a young age and then training in all of the traditional arts and sciences in the monastery, along with all of the monks who, you know, would probably make fun of her in many different ways for being a woman, as she tells in many interviews and stories and, and books. So it's pretty remarkable to think that um, we have access to the teachings of somebody from that background and that kind of education in such a traditional and really pure lineage that has kept absolutely purely like that up until today. So being a student of Rinpoche is, <clears throat> A great, great privilege. I, I feel so fortunate to be able to study with her. Rinpoche knows the Western mind so well um, that the way that the teachings are transmitted is within that pure line, as I was telling you, no adulteration. It's completely pure, perfect, you know, the perfect peerless dharma in a way that we as Westerners can really, really, really understand. She is a phenomenal teacher from the perspective also of her pedagogical skills. She knows how to talk to people that are like us. You know, we live in the world, we are lay practitioners, we are busy. We don't necessarily make the time or have the time to dedicate our lives to being in retreat and, and to just accomplishing the, the path and the practices. Uh, and yet, um, she really transmits to our to her students how important it is to really dedicate oneself in the path in a very very committed way and to try and make more time for that so it's just incredible to be able to have a teacher that knows the western mind so well and um and can really guide us in the path in a way where she says you know if you really apply yourself to these teachings you will get it you know but you just have to do it with a lot of commitment so I'm extremely, extremely grateful for, for Rinpoche's, uh, her wisdom is just very vast. <laughs> Can you recall an example of her interaction with you that reflects some of her qualities as a teacher and perhaps her understanding of the Western mind? I want to say every day, in every, in every day that I have the opportunity to be in her presence, it is like that. There isn't a moment that Rinpoche is not teaching um, from the, you know, all sorts of different examples, you know, how to really, how to really be, how to talk, how to behave, how to be with others, how to be kind. And, and when I link it with the, with the Western perspective is the mere fact that Rinpoche speaks English better than many native speakers that I know makes it that there's that direct approach, you know, and again, you don't need a translator to speak to her if you speak English well. And, um, and also that, that makes it that we can receive a lot more teachings because it's all just very direct, very straightforward. And so to just being able to, to talk to a master directly in the language that you know very well 
from that language to that language without having to go through another medium makes it that there's almost there's no ground for confusion i want to say you know and so that is a tremendous blessing and so if, uh, joining a little bit what i was saying at the beginning of the um, of our talk Rinpoche knows the worldview so well. So when she expresses herself in English, there's the worldview that is carried with it, you know? So it's almost just like talking to somebody from your same culture, but that is actually giving you this millinery um, tradition and, and wisdom. So it's, it's, it's just such a, such a privilege to have that kind of uh, approach. So if you ask me for a specific example, I cannot really just pinpoint one thing. It's just whenever Rinpoche speaks and, and whenever we're, we're there listening to whatever it is that she instructs, it's always really incredible from that directness of it just goes from here to here straight. Yeah, I think that's yeah. how I can say it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Can you give a sense of how is your personal practice unfolding at this point? We last left you, I suppose, your parents' divorce. and. Mm -hmm. uh, embodying the bodhisattva ideals in that situation as best you could at 13. Trying to embody and understand what that meant. <laughs> of course. How have things been unfolding for you personally as a practitioner? Well, I'm extremely fortunate that, you know, having a, having a teacher in the body uh, that, I can, that I can talk to and attend the teachings makes it, it's just such a privilege because you just obtain um, transmissions and guidance on those teachings on how to practice them and then you're fully supported. So since I have been studying with Milian Jitsukandra Rinpoche, I have had the chance to, to receive that guidance from her whenever she teaches a cycle of teachings and okay, this is what, what I'm studying now, this is what I'm practicing now. And Rinpoche is guiding us on the path exactly on how to practice it from the perspective of how to even sit in meditation, how to relate to the text, how to practice the instruments, how to hold the view, and, and now really training to learn more about all of the different ritual aspects that are so important for the Mindrodin tradition. So I've just been kind of taken, you know, in that path and guided like that. So the practice has just been following whatever it is that I have been instructed or that I've had the, the fortune to receive and to continue to study. So as Vajrayana practitioners, usually, you know, um, we receive teachings from, from a master, we receive the empowerment uh, that allows you to have the permission to actually practice, enter the mandala of that practice. And then you receive instructions on how the oral instructions on how to actually carry out that practice from all the practical levels and also the the view that is to be held and then you sit and you do it and then you can ask questions about it so we have access to all of those points and so for example there's been cycles of teaching that Rinpoche has been teaching in in many different countries and one of them that i'm um, fortunate to attend for the past eight years i want to say in spain is the sadhana um, that was one of the treasures that was revealed by Terdaglingpa. Um, and, and so Rinpoche has been teaching us from the beginning everything about that sadhana. So we've been studying it and practicing. And so every year we receive more teachings on the next portions of the text. So we don't have the totality yet. And so we commit to practicing the certain sections that we have received all of the instructions on. And then we progress into the next one and the next one and the next one. So that's how, that's how it has been for me. How long do your practice commitments take each day in that case? 
Oh, I'd rather not say. <laughs> so it's long. If you if you really do everything the way that you are supposed to, um, the ideal is to have four sessions a day. Um, if you can't do four, then hopefully two. If you can't do two, then one. But then there are many commitments, you know, and as Vajrayana practitioners, it is thought that, of course, there are the many principles that have to be kept uh, in the day. You have to do practices that relate to the three roots. And so, yes, that's, that's a lot of commitments. And so one is supposed to really dedicate a lot of time and, and be very diligent in, in all of the, the practices. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's fine not to say exactly how much, but I'm curious why you'd rather not. No, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a verse, very personal thing. If I think ideally you know working and having all of the activities that one has in the world and responsibilities if a practitioner that is following a vajrayana practice a sadhana practice and doing you know everything that is related to when you receive a cycle of teachings uh, within a sadhana practice there are other teachings that are part of that cycle that you have a commitment with other practices that are, you know, protectors of that cycle and so on. And so there, there's usually the guru principle, there's the yidam principle, and there's the, the uh, protector principle. So ideally, a Vajrayana practitioner should be practicing all of those three principles throughout the day, and there should be at least the three sessions. So if, let's say, you know, if, if it's possible to keep that schedule, or at least one morning practice and one evening practice, then one should be able to uh, accomplish all those three practices in one day. So then it really depends if you want to do more in the morning or in the evening, or if you want to really, if you have the time to do, ideally, I don't know, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. So with me, it varies a lot because of my life has been very um, sort of, I move a lot, I travel a lot, I, I have a lot of things that are happening. I'm very, uh, up until now, I've been really nomadic. So then you just have to go with the flow of those circumstances and then just try and really fit it in however best you can. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. one thing you said there, the intrigued me, well, actually many, many things, but one of the things you said that intrigued me, you know, you said about how to sit in meditation, you even mentioned that you were instructed in that. Are you talking about the seven point posture, this sort of thing? It seems interesting to me that you mentioned the sitting posture as, as being one of the list of things that you sure. are giving an example of. Um, uh -huh. Could you talk a bit about that? Sure. All I can say is that we, ha I have been fortunate to attend different teachings where there are different postures that are taught according to that specific practice, you know, because, and of course you as a meditation instructor know that really well. It's not like there's just one, of course, the, the seven Vairochana posture is, can be the most, let's say, I don't want to say standard, but of course the basic for having the good, good posture and you can maintain that in, in mainly most practices. But I guess most people don't really know or in this, in this world where meditation is becoming so popular, I guess it's people are not instructed that the postures in the meditation change according to the view and the practice that you're trying to maintain. Uh, according to the tradition as well. So when I mentioned that, then, you know, it's because it was very striking for me too, as a, as a, as a young child learning, okay, well, they taught me how to sit in the seven point Vairochana posture, but then learning that different practices actually have different ways of, you know, your legs are not always crossed in the same way, your hands shouldn't be, always be in the same way, your gaze and all of these kinds of things. 
Um, so I think that's that's really an important thing to learn as meditators as well, that there isn't just one way, right? So that's what I meant by it. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to your Tibetan language uh, trajectory shortly. But you're actually, you were telling me, in a really remarkable 10-year program. You've just begun that. Is that something you could talk a little bit about? So I think it's in the beginning stages. And so I'm not sure how much there is to really share yet. Um, so there is a view, Rinpoche, Minyan Jessica Rinpoche and her sister, um, <clears throat> Jetsun De Chimpadrum, uh, have this incredible vision to train their students to be able to really hold in, in a few years, to be able to hold the Drukchen entirely as a community. And so to be able to have all of the training that that uh, entails, being able to sustain the view and practice, of course, attain the accomplishment of the satna practice, but also know how to play instruments properly, how to uh, carry out all of the different uh, melodies that are in a, in a sadhana text, for example. Um, also being able to participate in all of the different ritual objects and um, substances that are made for these kinds of, um, of ceremonies, of practices being able to make tormas, mandala. And so this is an incredible training that has just started, that Rinpoche has launched. Um, it, it already began a few years ago. And now it seems like there is this training that uh, some students are receiving to really progress into becoming more and more committed, uh, giving more time in, in, in our daily life and in, in our life in general to just studying really the teachings from a philosophical perspective and putting them into practice together with learning all of the rituals and arts that the Minjoling tradition is so famous for. So that's something that, um, that, is, that is there and it's unfolding. And of course, with the situation that the world is facing today, I'm not really sure how all that is going to develop and change. Um, so yeah, that's all I can say. I, I don't know that I can say more at this point. <laughs> Presumably at the end of that, you become a Lama, right? I, yes, exactly. So I think this view, if I understand it, you know, it's so vast that it's even really interesting to think, okay, what, what, what is the view behind this incredible endeavor and gift that basically Rinpoche and the teachers at Mindraling are, are offering the participants in that, in that it's, you know, we call it a program, but that wouldn't even be an appropriate way of saying it. I think it's almost like you say, like a long-term retreat and uh, almost like a shedra of Vajrayana studies that's basically a monastic, you know, the shedra is a monastic college. This wouldn't be monastic because the participants are not all monastic. Some are and some are not. But basically within the college of studying all of the arts and sciences and the traditional perspective, that is basically what it would be. And I think, yes, probably, I believe uh, the view behind it from the teacher's perspective is to have practitioners that really can can sustain the view and, and accomplish to other to train others and guide others along the path in the future when that is there. Yes, I believe that's the, the view behind it. Wow, that's a, yeah, really amazing. So <laughs> let's you. go uh, back a little bit to, to talk about your journey, learning the Tibetan language and eventually becoming an interpreter 
uh, and you know, you're Jetsun Kandro Rinpoche's Spanish interpreter, I believe. Also, you teach many people the Tibetan language as well. So wh what was it like then in those early days attempting to acquire the language? Of course, you had a lot of background in, in other languages. And how did that language journey unfold? Mm. So I remember when I told you that I didn't really trust the translators that we had when we first approached uh, Lopen Chitterinpache, our, our, our wonderful master. That, at that time, I remember expressing to my parents my frustration and saying, hmm, how can I learn his language? Where do I learn it? How do I begin to do it? And I remember my parents, you know, I was 13, and my parents saying, first finish school, and then we'll talk about it. And, and so already from that age on, I was thinking, where on earth I am, am I going to find teachers and training and how, you know? And that was always in the back of my mind. And years passed and fast forwarding to, I'm 17 years old in Paris. I arrived there to study at uh, Sorbonne after my whole training in the French, you know, lycée and academic studies. And so I'm there and I have friends that are Buddhists that I have met, some Tulku, some Lamas that I knew from before, some are Western Tulkus. And I remember having tea with one of a uh, really fantastic uh, Lama, uh, that I was friends with and, and asking him, well, where can I study? You know, now I'm here and I am, I am free actually, actually I could learn the language. And he said to me, oh, don't you know that there's a university called Langues Orientales Inalco and there's a program just dedicated to Tibetan studies. And I thought, oh my goodness, are you for real? <laughs> Is this, are you kidding me? No, no, I have a couple of friends who are studying there and they love it. You should go check it out. And I remember saying, but I'm already enrolled in Sorbonne. I was actually studying at that time uh, art history and archaeology. And I thought, well, how can I study both? And he said, oh, you know, there are many students in France here that do a double double master. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a master. It was just the beginning. Do double studies. So you could, if you have time, you're going to be busy, but you can definitely do it. And so I thought, my goodness, I can't pass that up. So I went and researched and I, you know, I went and, and got, a, got admitted to the university and I started studying like that. But my training in art history was really intense as well. And there were two universities completely very far away from one another in the city where I had to go. So I spent all day in the metro going to the Tibetan class in the morning and then going to art history and then back to the Tibetan. And so it was a few months at the beginning that were just really crazy and i thought well i'm gonna have to find another strategy to do this well because it, it seems that i'm gonna learn a little bit of everything but then nothing really well so i decided i spoke to my the teachers that i had met there at the university um that i wanted to dedicate a little more time and so i decided to just wait uh, one semester to continue very properly with the academic training in the art history and then go back to Tibet. And at the same time, I continued to study the alphabet and all of these things on my own, which I had already received a few classes on. So then, yeah, so then later, I was able to actually join more, more as a full-time. And uh, it was incredible because the, uh, let's say the language laboratory that was there in charge of the Tibetan uh, classes at Inalco, were really amazing researchers and people that have actually written some of the most phenomenal books. There was uh, Nicolas Tournard, there was Françoise Robin, there was um, Heather Stoddard, who was the head of the department. 
all of these, you know, you, you look up their names and there are all these phenomenal scholars that, you know, at the time I didn't know. It took me, of course, a few months to figure out that I was with all of these eminences that were teaching. And I just fell in love with the, their way of teaching, with the program, uh, very high standards academically. It was really demanding. And so I just really got enticed. But of course, you know, I kept thinking, this is a spoken language that I'm learning because I was already learning parallelly the classical written um, literary Tibetan and also learning how to speak. Because for me, I, with my background of uh, traveling, um, as I was telling you at the beginning, it was always very important to keep that communicative aspect really alive. I know many practitioners and translators that actually are textual translators who don't really know how to speak Tibetan and cannot really relate to the masters. But for me, since it is, um, it's a culture that is alive, it's a tradition that is live, to have the opportunity to go and talk to the masters in their language, there's nothing that would equal that opportunity. So why limit yourself to just the textual language? Why not really learn both? And that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, living in France, it's not like I have Tibetan friends that I could just go out and have coffee and, and just practice the language. So you would learn and then you would forget. You would learn more, you would progress, and then you would forget because you wouldn't be practicing it. I was really on my own with my books and my teachers, but that's it. So I really wanted to be able to go study. Uh, of course, my ideal dream was to study in Hassa University and to live in Hassa for a few years and just get very proficient. But, you know, life took me in other directions, so I didn't end up doing that. So then I, I was looking for places in India and in Nepal where I could train. So like that, I started, I started the training with them at the university. And then years later, I ended up um, spending more time again in India, traveling between uh, Rinpoche's monastery and Nanuri and in um, Masuri and Dehradun, and then spending some time in Dharamsala in Ladakh um, with Tibetan friends and then continuing to practice it and learning like that. And then it was only years later that I finally decided, well, I need more training to be able to become an interpreter and a translator. And I looked and looked and looked and there were many programs that were wonderful. I actually did enroll in Hassa University and wanted to go study, but that happened in 2008. It wasn't a very favorable year to go there. And I had some other things in my life that happened that just uh, I just couldn't go study in Hassa. And so I decided to look for another place. Um, and, and I found this incredible program at Andrew Yeshe University that had just started a few months before. This was back in, yeah, in 2008. They launched the translator training program for the first time. And when I saw the description and I had an interview with the director of the program, who is one of uh, Chokini Marimpoche's main translator, um, Catherine Dalton, it was exactly what I was looking for and what I wanted to do. But I had to wait two semesters for it to end so that I could actually apply and go in the second batch. So I did, and I was very lucky that I got admitted. And in 2009, I, uh, I moved to Nepal to study it. And that was just the beginning of this incredible journey. And then I have been nowhere where the training in Tibetan language is, is really as, as phenomenal as in Dungeon Yeshi Institute. So then I studied for one year in this translator training program very intensely, you know, and we would have 
eight hours a day sitting, translating with Kimpos and Lopens, and you had, it was an incredible setting because you had correctors that would correct you and teach you how to actually translate properly. So for one year, that was just an explosion. It was exactly what I was looking for, what I wanted. And I, I absolutely loved everything about the program. And I already knew after a few months that one year would not be enough uh, to even attempt to start translating and understanding the teachings and working for lamas and things like that. And so halfway through the program, I spoke with the director at the time. It was, um, it was Thomas Doctor. And I said, how can I stay here? You know, I didn't really have money. I had, you know, the translator training program is a costly program. And I had basically all my savings. I was just given to the program. And I thought, how can I stay here and continue the training with the native speakers, you know, going back into being immersed? How can I do it? Can you offer me a job? Can I do something? You said that you might hire me as some, you know, kind of an assistant translator or something. And he said, well, uh, well, we're going to see about that. But he said, you know, there's the Tadra Foundation that we are associated with now that is, uh, had just started that year to give scholarships to recipients. And he said, you know, I think you should really apply and you might have a chance of getting it and studying it. So I applied to the Tadra Foundation Advanced Studies and I got it. And so for three years, they funded me to study a BA, uh, sorry, an MA, the Master's in uh, Buddhist um, Studies. And part of doing the MA in Buddhist studies was that I could actually produce a translation as part of my MA thesis, which is what I was interested in. Um, and then as part of that commitment with the Tzadar Foundation scholarship that I was awarded, the third year, the MA was only two years, the third year we could study with the monks in the monastic traditional Shedra, not anymore the Ranjun Yeshe International Shedra, but the actual um, Kaning, the Shedra of the monks, and I thought, oh my goodness, that is going to be such an incredible opportunity. So I did. <laughs> I did do that for the next three years and continued the training. And what had happened, so in between, how do we get to the teaching part, is that Catherine Dalton, who was teaching Tibetan, uh, she was one of the main Tibetan teachers at that time, had been wanting to do retreat and really uh, in her words, I want to say maybe she was really requesting Tokinima Rinpoche to give her the opportunity to go do some retreat. And he finally accepted and said, okay, you can go for six months, something like that. And so that was something that happened very spontaneously just before the academic year began. And so she gave me a call. She knew that I loved the grammar and I was always talking how I loved it. She says, well, would you like to teach Tibetan? And I thought, oh my God, I have no training in teaching. I've never taught before, but I do love this language that I know. She said, great, then go ahead. And I thought, okay, are you going to train me before you go and retreat? She said, no, because I'm leaving next week. So good luck to you. <laughs> and that's how I started teaching. So I was, I started teaching Tibetan in 2010 at the same time that I started my MA and then did the Monk Shedra. So I, I was doing that for the next years that I was working and studying at RYI. Fascinating. You're really eating, sleeping and breathing Tibetan language at that time. It's very, very rigorous uh, schedule by the sounds. But what's something about interpreting in general or for a great master like Jetsun Kandra and Pache? What's something about interpreting that people who have never done it wouldn't know about? What's something surprising about it? Mm. Oh, that's a beautiful question. You know, I always say that 
people who people who have the opportunity to, to be in that in that role of service are i think incredibly fortunate because you are a conduit and so a lot of people you know when they say oh such and such interpreter is great or whatever i always think actually there's just something at a different level that takes place of course there's all of the skills of the person the learning the practice the the, the sustaining the view as well i mean you have to be in my mind it's very important to be a practitioner that has really a commitment and is trying to understand the view in order to translate properly i think that is of course key when you're translating buddhist teachings but at the same time the way that i view it is that you open yourself up to be just the channel and that wisdom from the master and and that the master is also invoking that wisdom from the buddhas and the bodhisattvas just passes through it's almost like there's a current that goes through you and so at that point it doesn't really matter who you are what you are what you've done what you haven't done i think if if there's like this purity of keeping that in mind that there is a say it's actually a transmission that's what most people might not know or think about or reflect on the fact that it is a transmission of what of power and of wisdom so the to me the interpreter is somebody that opens themselves up to the devotion of okay let's 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 be that let's be the channel from which that that can really shine forth and so for me one of the greatest joys when i have the opportunity to interpret is that you just let it all go you just give it all there's nothing that you're doing it's just being in the moment receiving that tremendous wisdom and having the opportunity to retain it very well because since you're working on having to rephrase it in a way that people can understand it it really stays you know it's uh you're studying it you're it, it's the privilege of remembering it in a way that maybe if you're just receiving or passively studying it another way it doesn't happen at the same level so there's there's that i want to call it there's some kind of a magic that happens so yeah that's what i can say from my perspective <laughs> yeah and i mean it must take an enormous amount of language skill and also theoretical knowledge or um, i suppose not theological knowledge philosophical knowledge of um, course of course i would never put that down of course but i think the importance of being that of knowing that it's a transmission is what i really wanted to emphasize yeah that's amazing that when you're saying that makes me think presumably if jetson kendra and is your guru you you do guru yoga with her and then you're also translating and you are passing on her words and sort of being her speech in that language in a certain sense that must be very strange or am i thinking of that wrongly oh i can i can see where you say that you know i tried not to think about it <laughs> because i don't <laughs> i don't fully grasp it and you know at the same time it is such a tremendous responsibility it is if i really start thinking about it then my legs are going to start shaking and i'm just going to want to run through the door because how can you do justice to the words of such incredible masters and their wisdom when you know that you are you know just learning you're just on the path and so how can you even pretend to want to make justice you know how can i even so i'd rather not think about that and just really pray that something from the blessings is actually taking place there but it is very interesting because you know you see different interpreters and you see their different styles their way of speaking their hand gestures all of that 
And, uh, and I realized, you know, if I watch myself in a video or something, it's very strange for me to watch. I actually don't really like hearing my voice or watching. It's very, very weird. One thing that I noticed that I do and that I actually I was trained, um, we had the fortune to be trained a few times by this incredible woman, Nikki Glenn, that was, um, she was one of the trainers for simultaneous interpreters at the UN for many, many years. And she lived in Kathmandu was a student of Patrick and so she would come and talk to us, the translator training students and, and teachers, and she would really give us a lot of training and tips on how to, how to sit, what to wear, how to speak, how to train your voice. I mean, all of this incredible, um, really techniques that you need to know, how to note take or not note take, all of these things. And I remember something that was very, really stayed with me on from her teachings that I was already doing intuitively was when you are translating for someone or interpreting, you are trying to be that person as much as you can. If you want to be very, there's one school of thought, you know, to be as akin to that person. So if the person is very lively, then you should also be very lively so that people get that transmission of what the person is trying to say. And it's almost like you're trying to mimic, but without, of course, being ridiculous, right? You're just trying to put yourself in that universe and being as close to that person as, as you can. And I noticed that I've always done that in my life as, you know, the daughter of a diplomat, always trying to attend to different people and talk to them in their languages and, and try to be at that level, at their level so that they could understand what was happening. So it's something that I kind of learned and breath and was breathing from that since I was a child. So now with a master, like my own guru, well, you know, of course I would, my biggest, I think, um, sign of, of, of devotion and, 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 and respect would be to want to embody the qualities of the guru. Of course, I would really would love to embody um, her wisdom and, and all of the qualities at some point. And knowing that uh, it's a very different scenario here, maybe just what I try to do is just keep the tone, you know, of course. So if Rinpoche is keeping a tone that is very serious, then keeping that very serious tone. Whenever she's cracking a joke, then of course, relaxing and being like that. So just kind of being able to read the situation of what is being imparted and just doing that. But of course, I'm Cynthia and I have my personality and my way of speaking and just keeping that also very true to myself. So it is a very interesting balance. <laughs> From what I understand, part of the function of Guru Yoga is that sort of, at least one of the steps, is the blending of your mind with the Guru and the sort of uh, etc. And that's very interesting that that's also a translation uh, effect. Do you find that for a period of time after you've done uh, an intense period of translation, Mm -hmm. uh, you have a sort of trans translation, I guess, uh, not quite hangover, but a sort of translation <laughs> effect where you're uh, picking up rhythms or you can't help kind of acting like you're going in a very subtle communication way. Oh, wow. What I have never really thought about that. What I can say, what I do feel after very intensive days of, let's say, if there's six hours that you're interpreting or something like that. What I definitely can tell you that happens is that there is... Um, there is a quietness that is just so lovely. <laughs> it's, it's almost like this mental chatter is really not so present because of the clarity of having to be so 
uh, intellectually active and so so it's like a meditation is you're so focused on what you're doing and you don't have time to think it's on the spot right so therefore it has to happen so you have to be 100 percent concentrated otherwise it doesn't go well it's happened to me many times you know if i get distracted for example something that i've always talked to with friends that i find very interesting if I'm beating myself up thinking I'm doing it, I'm doing a terrible job. Oh my God, how did you translate this like this? How did you even say that word? Or, you know, if, if my ego gets in the way of either good or bad at any point, then I can tell you that the rest is polluted by that and it doesn't go very well. And then of course the post time of the, of the translation, I spend beating myself up and thinking, Oh, you did a terrible job. If, if I'm able to just keep the concentration and try to ignore whatever judgment of good or bad and just be there, then at the end, the after that the that period of intensity there's just that really incredible rest that happens of just clarity of just being peaceful and being very present i think there yeah i don't know how to explain but just being in a state where you're very present very alert and very calm and that is something that i have to say i love about this if I can call it a job or this kind of service is that this is incredible because to me, it's not something that I have been able to tap into from meditation. It's a very different thing, but yet it's very, very powerful. And the way that I interpret it is exactly what you've just said is just getting the blessings from that guru yoga from the teacher. Yeah. 100%. Now I have had, I think you said my connection broke down for a few seconds, but I think you were saying if it affects communication later, it does in the sense that, I don't really want to talk or chatter so much after that. And I'm a very chatty person, you can see. Um, but after that, I don't really feel like engaging so much into talking with people because of course I'm exhausted too, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and you do feel, I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience uh, from teaching meditation and being with your students, is that for me, something happens after translating is that you can really see the speech that is virtuous and the speech that isn't there's a point in which you almost just get so tired of oh my god you know all i do is just gossip like oh when i use my speech i have nothing really just very interesting or there's no wisdom in there and so when you've been using your speech to translate words of wisdom you can really feel there's just a different effect and that becomes very apparent i think as an interpreter and a, and a practitioner so you I kind of get tired of my own self, <laughs> you know, so I don't want to hear myself talk. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, all right. Perhaps then to start to go into the conclusion, uh, I know you teach Tibetan, uh, of course, in, in institutes like Rangjung Yeshe, and also privately uh, to private students uh, over the internet, presumably people who are linguists and want to learn the language, perhaps for professional reasons or academic reasons. And also a lot of your students, I, I imagine, would be people who are Buddhists and are interested in, in acquiring the language for their you know, same reason as you, to, to talk to their gurus or to be able to read the texts or read their prayers and understand them and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, in your view, how important is it for somebody who's interested in the path of Buddhism that you followed, how important is it 
to have the understanding of the language. And if they do begin to acquire it, what sort of things unlock to them that they may otherwise not be able to access? Mm, that's, a, that's a really phenomenal question. I keep thinking about it all the time, actually, too. I think there are different levels of commitment, right, in practice and also different, different practices and traditions. From what I have gathered in the Vajrayana teachings, the language is really important, being able to understand the concepts directly without going through translations. I think, and, and I, have, I have received teachings on the fact that having that direct experience of what a term might mean is actually almost a meditation instruction, right? And so when you have, so I'm going to bring this term up because it's such an important term and it's so known. I'm not going to attempt to really translate it because I don't, I can't, but the term Rigpa, for instance, Rigpa, which means to clearly view, to clearly know, to clearly see that that would be one of the root uh, meanings of that word. Now it gets translated in different ways and it gets used. First, I have to say it gets used in different contexts. Um, it's very important to know that certain terminology is used in across the board from in different teachings. It can be used in Abhidharma, it can be used in Madhyamaka teachings, it can be used in Dzogpa Chempu teachings, and it can have a very different meaning according to how it is used. So, you know, as a foreigner who's learning, okay, Rikpa or Rikpa, as we say it in English, can mean, you know, only awareness or clearly seeing can be a misunderstanding because depending on the context in which that word is used, it doesn't just have that one meaning. And so to know the context and the, what is trying to be conveyed by that word and that specific, whether it is fifth instruction or whether it is more of, a, of another context of teachings, whether it's in the sutra teachings or something else, then that makes the big difference. So as a practitioner, I think to have that direct access of knowing uh, is just an incredible um, way to just clear the confusion of our concepts and our, our misunderstandings. So the terminology is very clear when they speak about clarity. What is clarity? What is luminosity? All of these terms that get to be, can be very touchy-feely as well, but, or can also be really important in the philosophy. What do they mean in this specific context? So something that can be called clarity might have many different ways of being expressed in the Tibetan language. So by seeing that word in a text, you know exactly the context and what the instruction is behind it. So for me, I think that anyone who really would like to study and practice more deeply the Vajrayana teachings, if there is a notion, maybe not learning Tibetan fully, you know, people don't have time, we're all busy and it's a big commitment as you have seen it yourself, at least to have the ability to know the way that the language functions and to know etymology can be a tremendous benefit for one's own understanding and that direct approach. So I think that would be the main, the main thing that I could say, yeah, regarding that. That's yeah, wonderful. And I'm wondering then to finish, if it might be possible, if you just say something in Tibetan, uh, perhaps a saying or a passage of some sort that you're particularly fond of, so people could hear the language. Oh, <laughs> I would become really shy to do that. <laughs> it's the most awfully rude thing to ask, and you can say no. Oh, I would have, I would have prepared uh, something. Um... <laughs> 
Yeah, I think, you know, also, also there's one thing to be said, of course. Um, this is important, and I tell all my students that, is that having a native speaker really transmits, especially when it comes to something that it has, that has to do with the Dharma, right? The transmission directly from somebody who has that lineage of uh, the oral lineage and that oral transmission and has received it and is their native language and they can say it with the tones the way that it's supposed to be there's no more blessing than that because the the tradition carries that blessing so even i feel funny sometimes you know of course i know the language and i'm still studying it and and all of that and i love the pronunciation and trying to pronounce as clearly and and as as closely as possible but i know that i'm far from 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 really being like a speaking like a native speaker more so than other languages in other languages i can tell you i think i speak french like a french person yes tibetan no i'm still really far from that and i don't think i'll ever be because of that sacredness i think so i really try to respect that now i could tell you something very secular but it wouldn't be the same. So anyway, I encourage everyone who's listening to this and who will be uh, practicing to really tap into listening to their teachers and to listen to native speakers really uh, kind of recite something because it's going to be very different. I would be butchering it. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Cynthia Font, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Steve, for your time. This has been really lovely. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.